The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of our History of Gear series, we talk with Bruce Johnson about Larry Penberthy and the founding of Mountain Safety Research, or MSR. We talked about Penn Berthy's innovations and how he pushed climbing equipment to be more safe. So welcome back, everyone. This is Chase. And joining me again today for our History of Gear series is Bruce Johnson. Thanks for being here, Bruce. Yeah, you wonder, what's that on your head? <laughs> what is that on your head? <laughs> uh, this is the Mountain Safety Research climbing helmet, which was quite controversial in its day, and there's a lot of design that went into it, engineering, testing. Uh, it was very well thought out and yet controversial, and so I'll take it off for now, but I'll get back to some detail about how it was designed and how it was tested and what that was all about. That's great. Of course, with that, we're, we're talking about MSR, Mountain Safety Research, and uh, the founder, Larry Penberthy, today. Yeah, Larry Penberthy, uh, born in 1916, uh, passed away in 2001. So he, he's a little bit younger than the Holly Bars, about five or six years. And he's a little, well, a fair amount older, about 12 years older than uh, Jack Stevenson. So he kind of fits in that zone there. He was a very active climber uh, for many, many years back in the 30s and 40s, and he's uh, kind of renowned for having climbed Mount Rainier so many times he completely lost track of how many he'd uh, made, how many climbs, how many successes, and how many uh, attempts because Rainier has terrible weather and you often can get turned back. Uh, he was an engineer like Jack Stevenson. Not the same kind of engineer, but um, an engineer uh, in a field that is a little hard to describe because it uh, involves glass. Um, Jack Stevenson was aerospace, but uh, with Stevenson, he was a graduate uh, in 1936 in engineering, but he wound up working uh, during World War II in Rochester, New York for Eastman Kodak Company, designing special lenses and formulations uh, of glass for bomb sites in World War II, which after the war led him into his own business, manufacturing all sorts of custom glass eventually a special type of lead impregnated glass that was used extensively maybe still is in nuclear plants nuclear things 
which made him a fortune. And he was, uh, you might say, independent because of that, which has a big part in the story of how he was able to get going with MSR. But we'll get into that. So Right. I, I think we, you and I both thought it was important to, to bring him up now and start to talk about MSR and Larry because he kind of fits into this narrative. Maybe he didn't have necessarily come off of the family tree of Jerry, Holubar, Frostline, but he's, he kind of falls under that, that line you know, of, of Jack Stevenson. Like, I, I guess he nece- wasn't necessarily influenced by him, but they're kind of kindred spirits in a way. And so it seemed natural after our warm light Jack Stevenson conversation to talk about Larry. Yeah. Um, I'd also add that in the history of gear, you had this real locus of new gear, creative new gear coming out of Colorado. The other place something was happening was the Bay Area, although the real innovators didn't start until quite a few years after Colorado. And then you had Seattle, and Seattle was the birthplace of a number of great gear companies. REI was one of them in 1938. Uh, And then long about MSR time in the 60s, and so forth. You had a number of other companies burgeoning forth, like Early Winters and MSR, and oh, there were some pack companies. And um, anyway, that that was the deal. Was that an influence on on Larry growing up? He grew up in Washington, in Seattle, right? Um, mm-hmm. Was did he just kind of grow up knowing? Oh yeah, this you know REI is here. He had access to gear that way. Is that where he kind of got acquainted with with climbing? Is he just had access to, to gear by being born in that, in that region? As a kid, he wasn't really a climber or, you know, doing that kind of thing. Uh, you have to see the time frames here. 1938, REI gets going about all they have is an ice axe. And gradually they add more things like crampons and so forth. Um, Larry was climbing Mount Rainier all those times using really ancient gear from Europe, right? Wood shafted ice axes and the, you know, very ancient, uh, probably the tricuni uh, nailed boots and so forth. Um, so he had some influence, I suppose, but really it all, it all came once he got back from uh, being in New York, working for Eastman Kodak. He came back to the Northwest and was very active in the, uh, Seattle Mountaineers and climbed a lot with them and, and then had some experiences uh, that uh, suddenly in the uh, uh, late 60s just opened his eyes to climbing safety and the need for, for better gear. And, and I'll get into that here in a minute. Right. So, that, so he graduated, studied engineering in 1936, went to New York, kind of went down that engineering path, that career. Um, when, when did he come back to the Seattle area? Well, it was after the war, World okay. War II. So that would be right around 45 or so. And just sort of settled um, back into life as an adult who was uh, uh, involved in these exotic glass manufacturing enterprises that were his own. Uh, He was an independent businessman and and really uh, had a lot of success. Right. And so it was kind of getting into the Seattle Mountaineers group 
you know, did, was that the thing that helped really get him into the industry or acquaint him with the, the sport? I, guess- I would say acquainting with, with the sport. Yeah. Yeah. Acquainting with the sport and having him out in the mountains. And, and yet it's interesting to me that it really took uh, an accident that happened up in the mountains in around 1968 to really um, create the genesis of uh, MSR. Right. Uh, he, was, he was leading, a, a, not a climb, but he was leading a hike on rugged territory when a, a teenage girl slipped and slid down a tree tree hole, tree well, um, hit her head. And, uh, it was a very close call, but, uh, uh, they were able to rescue her and get her to safety. And then he started taking climbing courses. And, uh, one thing led to another, uh, where the mountaineers knew he was an engineer and had various testing facilities. And they said, you know, we've had some, some, troublesome troublesome things that were on some climbing courses some ropes broke where they shouldn't have broken and could you test them so um larry took them and tested them and uh there's a final piece in in my book where it's more of a quote where it's like test the rope oh my god it broke so easily well let's test some more pieces of it now the carabiner broke What's going on here? And that led him to <laughs> just an avalanche of testing of climbing gears uh, that he was doing as a volunteer for mountaineers for their equipment uh, committee, uh, equipment and safety committee. Uh, there's a list like a mile long of, of all kinds of stuff related to the sport of climbing, not just ropes, that he was testing, 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 and carabiners from all kinds of manufacturers and pitons and um, discovering again and again weaknesses and big differences uh, in carabiners that failed terribly, dangerously, and ones that were better. And um, at some point, the mountaineers. Um, he and the Mountaineers parted ways in a way that was um, fractious in some way. I don't know the detail. This gives you a, a glimpse into the mind of um, Larry Penperthy. I only hope that none of this new criticism will come from the bereaved family of one of our members killed by faulty equipment on one of our club climbs. You will recall that Copernicus was severely criticized for saying that the Earth moves around the sun. His work was banned for 200 years. I hope that the dark ages of equipment testing, now proclaimed by the present board of the Mountaineers, will not last so long. In fact, quite a few members have expressed to me similar dismay, and we are organizing to overturn the present board's position. This will be done, of course, only by constitutional methods. Um, And this kind of strength, this kind of... uh, willingness to uh, take on large, powerful entities was clearly a hallmark of uh, Larry Penberthy. He was uh, independent because he had these very successful businesses on the outside, not related to climbing. And, And so 
he broke off from the Mountaineers and set up MSR as a company. Uh, I think it was uh, either late 68 or uh, 69 and just carried on the work funding it himself. After a while, it became pretty clear that it was kind of expensive. Plus he was getting all kinds of great creative ideas for gear that he wanted to make himself. So he, because he already had skilled engineers and product people working in his glass factory, um, he was able to pull a lot of those people in and manufacture stuff and sell stuff to help finance what he was doing. But I, I want to make it very uh, clear. He was always heavily motivated by safety and getting safe stuff out, not by making any profit. That was not a consideration. Right. That, I mean, that makes the, the name make all the more sense in the world, Mountain Safety Research. And, and it just really embodies him. And, and it seems like his values, right? It's research, you know, being that, that engineer mm-hmm. and the importance of testing and then safety, kind of that pure, just wanting to make sure that people are safe out in the wild and, and not necessarily looking for profit. So kind of gives a new lens to that, the name of the company. Yeah. Very much so. So this helmet, for instance, if you actually had a climbing accident, you got hit in the head with a rock or something, he wanted you. He was very strong saying, if you have anything with the helmet, I want it back because I want to examine it and figure out what happened and how I can improve it. Um, And might as well tell you a little bit about the helmet. He had the research materials. Is it going to be made of fiberglass or something else? He settled on a polycarbonate. Uh, the testing uh, involved taking a shot put from a certain height and dropping it on the helmet. Bam! Like a, a huge rock impact and then measuring the forces exerted on, uh, you might say, a neck, how it would be transmitted. And also a plumb bob with a sharp point, like something really sharp coming down and trying to get through the helmet. So there's these tiny little things in here. I don't know whether a person can see those, but the the little metal things. Yeah. That's a certain type of wire that was specifically shaped, designed, type of metal, thickness of metal to deform, to absorb shock. So Mm. if you had a a hard fall actually the helmet was now done for you really did need to turn it in to get a new one um but the helmet wasn't the first thing the first thing he worked on was ice axes and ropes yeah so the company started in in 1968 1969 they open a store right across from rei which is interesting um in Seattle, it sounds like, um, it, did they launch with ice axes? So they opened the store. Did they, wh- what were the products like at that time? Did they just have ice axes that they were selling out of the store? What were the products in the store? Well, by the time they opened their, their store, they had several products. Yeah. So, uh, they had the ice axes, they had, uh, the stoves and, some other products like, um, where are we here? Uh, snow flukes. People probably don't know what that is. Yeah, what's a snow fluke? 
Um, that is, so in the Northwest, a lot of times you have just wet, sloppy snow or feet worth of snow that isn't hard, that doesn't hold worth a darn. It's, it, it's, it's very difficult to anchor and be safe when climbing. So this thing, actually, I don't think this is my actual climbing flute, but anyway, this thing is a dead man. And when you put it in the snow, the soft snow, and, and you put weight on it, it flies into the snow and, and will not come out. It digs itself in deeper. It resists like crazy. And, of course, he was doing tests of this stuff because he's an engineer. He'd uh, go up to, uh, like, a parking lot and uh, put rope on on a dead man and attach it to a car bumper and with instruments to measure the amount of force uh he'd see how how much it took to to yank it out of the snow and he'd get up to figures like 1600 pounds well were other companies i guess when companies were producing these products what what was the level of testing before larry I guess what were some of the other companies that were around? Chenard was making his stuff in his in his tin shed in '59, right? So he was around. Um, who else was around, and what was the level of testing going into these the products of the time? Well, I suspect you see that there wasn't much, especially not to the level of of Penberthy, uh, who was bringing full engineering skills and resources to the subject. His uh, his 40-foot high climbing tower was on the uh, grounds of uh, his plant that did glass. And so not only did they toss dummies off and so forth, but, but they used it for any variety of other purposes. Uh, to, you could test carabiners that way. You could, and also he opened it up for the public, climbing public, especially mountain safety groups, to come in and uh, repel off it and, and test gear themselves. Okay. So he was always uh, interested so much in, in safety and, as I said, not, not into the profit end of it. He right. could have said, oh, here's my tower. I'm going to charge you $50 to come with your group to, uh, you know, test out your skills. But, no, he didn't do that. It was like a donation. Yeah, donate something if you want to. Right. Well, and that's similar to his newsletters, right? And we haven't touched on those. 1968, is that when he starts sending out newsletters to, to people? Yeah. Yeah, he had a mailing list of something like 14,000 eventually. Yeah. Uh, the one that I saw on your website, you've got a scan of it. You know, he has some, it's a newsletter that has like knots and it teaches you how to tie knots. And he says, if you can give, you know, however much, 50 cents or something, um, you know, if you want. And if not, enjoy learning about these knots, which I exactly. thought was really interesting. Exactly. I think the, the line said something about donate 50 cents up to $5 or not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that was, and you, you talked a little bit about this. It was very kind of similar to Jack Stevenson in that like very detailed newsletters, very analytical, very um, engineering minded. Yeah. Um, and like Jerry Cunningham's booklets, uh, he had a real thing about educating people. You know, here's, here's my 
new ice axe design. Here's all these engineering drawings and here's all this data about why you should want to use this and how you understand how ice axes can, can save your life if you fall. Right. Right. Yeah, which I mean, with with a sport like that, you you there has to be education, right? And the brands have to do the educating because it is it's a it's a daunting activity, um, and and your life depends on it. And so I feel like it, it's it's interesting to see that he was the one who's really pushing. I mean, we're making the products. I don't know if he thought this way, but by me making the products, I also have to ensure that the people using them know what they're doing, um, and have some level of education when they're using it. I don't know if you felt that as a responsibility. Did, did you see well, or feel that that was his responsibility to educate? It really shook him up when he was a, a, a trip leader and that girl almost died. Yeah. It wasn't his fault, really, but it uh, really led him to take it really seriously. He'd been climbing for something like 30 years at that point without a mishap, but it really shook him up. And then uh, on a mountaineers climb where where somebody got killed due to what he felt uh pretty clearly was uh, faulty equipment he wasn't involved in that one but uh, it all caused him to really make a, a turn in 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 his life he wasn't he wasn't going to just be out there climbing the mountain all the time he was going to start a company about safety and that's what he did right well, can we dive into the some of the products, the the ice axe? I know we we touched on that. How that was the first. Um, well, there were there were two, right? The Thunderbird and the Eagle. Is that yeah. Right? So the Thunderbird has has a certain design of the ads and the pick here, and it's all related to studies and theories he had about. Uh, uh, balancing out things like chopping steps. The uh, old-fashioned axes, oftentimes you'd be chopping steps and all the stuff would fly in your face. <laughs> and with his design, they'd go off to the side. And then there was the, the issue of uh, self-arrest, stopping power, and you'd try to balance those things out. Um, he was also always into safety, right? So why is this thing orange? <laughs> International orange, safety orange. He was so into orange, the, the building that made the gear was painted orange. <laughs> so, uh, and then this is the eagle. You can see it's pretty different, especially on this end. It's got the serrations, uh, and there's reasons for that, right? And you can read the newsletters and he'll tell you all about it. Now, his orange axe in particular just really upset the traditional climbers who've loved their gorgeous wood shafted ice axes from Europe. Um, one of the guys I talked to uh, um, said that Chenard was just horrified. Uh, he called this thing an orange metal monster. And Penberth, he didn't care. He was about function, not about beauty. Mm. Uh, the orange is actually uh, a paint that they put on the streets, a very durable paint that was <laughs> for painting streets. Uh, From your perspective, the, the climbing community or the other brands were, were upset just 
purely based off of how his products looked? Or was and, there some innovation that they were, they were questioning? Oh, yeah. And, and some prominent people questioned the positive pick angle. And, and uh, over time, there were, there were modifications uh, uh, to the original design, uh, the Sumner Ice Axe. This was a guy that, that uh, Penberthy knew in the Seattle area. Over time, what really stuck wasn't so much the design of the head, but it was the, oh, my God, we... These wood shafts just are dangerous. And so now you don't find any wood shafted ice axes, except on the handles of the REI stores. Right, right. <laughs> so you feel like that's one of the, the major innovations is, uh, you know, he helped move forward, you know, just, just a, safer, a safer product, a safer ice axe. And then there's, you know, some of the innovations of the design itself, but overall ushering in a safer product. Yeah, he was the first to just say, hey, I question this ice axe, the wooden shafted ice axe from Europe that everybody uses. He, he was the first guy brave enough to just say that and to test, to say, I have tests. And there are some very detailed tests in, in those newsletters, different ice axes from different brands and different types of wood in the shaft and describing how many pounds it took and what type of a fracture resulted. And, you know, that was him. And, and so probably had a similar experience with other products, the helmet, of course, um, climbing ropes, stoves. Um, do, you, do you mind touching on some of those products? What were some of the major changes that he he brought about in those products? Uh, the stove story is an interesting one. And it's again tied into to, uh, <clears throat> safety. First the stove. Uh, so he was driving with some friends up to Mount St. Helens before it blew up. And they had this great discussion on the way up about what would be the ultimate mountaineering stove. Now, we're not talking about a, a stove for use on a boat or a, a stove for use on a family camping trip. We're talking a mountaineering stove. Uh, high altitude, uh, expeditions, uh, winter camping. What do we need? What's the ultimate? It has to have super high output. It has to be able to melt like huge amounts of snow down into potable water. And most stoves at the time couldn't even begin to do that. And when they got under really cold temperatures, uh, they'd hardly work because they didn't have pressurization. And even the ones that had some rudimentary pumps were kind of unsafe because of where the pump was situated, they could overheat and go boom. So they were thinking through a number of issues, uh, including, interestingly, psychological. When you're up in a blizzard and the wind is howling away for days at a time, and your tent is flapping and you're kind of deafened, you know, do you want a quiet stove or do you want one that roars, that gives out a reassuring sound that overpowers the sound of that hostile environment out there? Yes, it was a psychological thing. And... Uh, my, my uh, particular stoves, I always appreciated that. Uh, my name for my stoves was uh, 
I always called them Krakatoa. You'd light them up, and as you got them going, they go roar, big roar. Um, the detractors would say, they won't simmer, I burn everything. Well, that wasn't really what they were made for. They were made to keep climbers hydrated because uh, winter climbing, high altitude work in general is very desiccating. And he'd done a lot of studies uh, about acute mountain sickness and was convinced that uh, um, dehydration was one of the factors that really led to that, which then led to losses of judgment, which then led to either hypothermia or, or accidents. So the stove has a lot of features that are designed in. It has a, a striker here. You don't need matches to fumble with when it's windy and your hands are frozen. Uh, it's detachable. You can carry large fuel bottles, small fuel bottles, multiple fuel bottles. <clears throat> this model came along a little later, the multi-fuel burner which will burn anything in the world. You can travel with this stove anywhere in the world. And if you have to burn soldered fuel or jet fuel or kerosene, it'll burn anything, which of course no other stove in the world was doing. So that's where he came from on that. And he wasn't the person who put some of these type of designs into the actual product. He had a team of people. The company started in 1969. Um, it starts, starts in 1969. Did it really take off in the beginning? What was the response from, from the climbers, uh, from the consumers? It sounds like, you know, obviously they're still around today. Um, there had to have been some success and those products had to have taken. And, and eventually he started to build out a team. You know, what was the response um, in the beginning and how did it grow? During the late 60s, there were a lot of rebels running around right? Jack Stevenson was, was one of them. Uh, and so he attracted that kind of uh, crowd, as well as people who you might say were scientifically minded climbers or climbers who, for one reason or another, were very tuned into safety. Mountain rescue people often were very tuned into safety. And so people who were on his mailing lists would buy the stuff. Um, his little store by then, he had some other products. Um, he had these glass-making uh, facilities, factories in South Africa and also a big one in England. So he'd sell, especially in England with the big climbing community there, he'd, he'd put ads in magazines there and sell there too. He was a big guy. He wasn't like a little skinny Jack Stevenson who got cold easy. He was a big guy, big hands, long arms. And... <clears throat> This is him wearing a pile garment. He may have been the first guy to bring pile in to the U.S. from Norway. By about 74, 75, he was bringing it in, putting it in the catalogs. Why was he so interested in pile? Well, because of the miserable climate in the Washington Cascades, where, yeah, you could get snowed on, but just as likely you could have sleet, freezing rain, rain at 34 degrees and you needed something that wouldn't collapse like down. So again, that's his safety thing. Similarly, he was a, uh, a big user of uh, 
polar guard, which is a synthetic fiber. So he didn't carry down stuff. That was for Colorado, where they have the dry cold. So he had polar guard garments. And sure, they're more bulky, but he didn't care. He was a guy about function and safety. So those are some of the products that he would carry in, in the store, pile, polar guard garments. And he had a tent as well after a while. And it wasn't just a knockoff of other people's designs. It was his own original take on tents. It was a kind of a hoop design, kind of like a barn with, with curvy elements front and rear. Uh, he eventually made it out of Gore-Tex. And like with everything Penberthy, uh, he tested it. And the way he tested it was, uh, and he'd drive down the freeways, literally the freeways near Tacoma, Washington with this tent on top. Testing, 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 testing. Now the tent I have never been able to lay my hands on an actual one of the MSR tents. I don't know what happened to all of them, um, but I've had a few people send me pictures. Hmm. It seemed like a well-thought-out design and not too heavy. Um, again, an example of just how he was not afraid at all to rethink products from the ground up and then take care of, well, does anyone want them? Right. Yeah. Uh, do you want to touch on climbing ropes at all? I think you, you might have a little bit. What, what are some of the major innovations he brought to ropes? Basically testing. Mm. Yeah, not, not a lot of testing Ser happening before that, which is concerning. Serious, serious testing. Yeah, that's uh, one of the first charges he had from the Mountaineers. They were like, huh, look at this rope here that we brought back from the climbing school. It broke under circumstances where it shouldn't have broken it wasn't any big fall or anything and so he researched ropes and then more than researching ropes and taking other people's words for uh he tested the heck out of it out of these ropes different ropes and formulated his own design had it made and sold it there was always concern about climbing ropes even uh roy hollybar had concerns about climbing rope of his day he had his own uh rope manufactured called columbian which he sold through hollybar but he didn't have the level of testing that penberthy would subject things to right well that i mean it's a complicated product right and uh were they making it here in the States? Did they find someone to be able to weave those ropes for them? How, you know, where was a lot of manufacturing for the products, you know, ice axes, ropes, stoves, was a lot of that happening in the U S at the time? Yeah. Well, those products you just mentioned basically came out of his factory, right? In, his in own South factory. Seattle. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but things like the rope, no, no, yeah. I don't know who he had doing that, but there were rope making companies in the U S and yeah, this was before anything was really getting outsourced to Asia. Right. Right. Um, well, any other major innovations before we kind of get to, you know, he sells the company and we can get into why any other major product innovations that we've left off? Uh, let me look at my note here. Perhaps one of the first guys with pit zips, 
mm, yeah. for ventilation. Um, so they were also making apparel, and, and you mentioned mm-hmm. some of that. Uh, what, what types of um, apparel products were they making? Things with no style, things that were functional. Right. Polar Guard, Parka, Boring Colors with a hood, Polar Guard pants, all baggy but super functional, stuff like that. Right. Right. And did, did that really take off or were people, you know, it, it, it didn't have the, the appeal just because it was purely functional. Yeah. The um, marketing department uh, was gradually catching up with things. And then in 1981 uh, it got sold to uh, REI. Um, But yeah, there are a couple other things. Um, Lithium batteries. So again, this is a safety thing. When you're climbing the big mountains, a lot of times you have to start way before dawn. You need flashlights that will function reliably. You don't have to change the batteries. They function well at very low temperatures and they didn't have that kind of stuff. And then there were lithium batteries and, and uh, Penberthy was probably the first guy brought those uh, to, to uh, climbing products. Um, and he didn't do it in a flashlight because what? Super cold conditions, you're, you're going to hold a flashlight and have it exposed to the super cold. Te- no, uh, the batteries were in a little belt pack that clipped to your belt under your warm clothing. And then it went to a headlamp. Mm, yeah. All functional, all thought out from that standpoint. Right. Well, what, what motivated him? You mentioned in, in the eighties, do you, do you know what the day that he, or the date, you know, that he sold? Uh, well, it was 81. Okay. Um, by then there were a number of other uh, people involved in the company. Uh, he still owned it, of course, but uh, at some point it seemed like it was just sort of winding down and he was losing interest in it and going back to uh, his basic business, right? the glass business. So Mm. uh, it was sold to REI. I'm not very clear really what they did with it. Um, When uh, Penberthy passed away in 2001, it went straight to Cascade Designs, uh, which interestingly uh, was owned by a group of three men, um, one of whom was John Burroughs. The other two were uh, LEA, um, two brothers, LEA, the last name. And John uh, had graduated from uh, the same school the same year as Penberthy. I don't know really whether they knew each other, but they certainly had some simpatico. And those guys, those three guys invented the Thermarest air mattress. Right. Oh, okay. And there's, there's early pictures of Penberthy out in the woods laying on his Thermarest air mattress. So you kind of imagine that uh, when Penberthy passed away, um, the Thermarest guys said, you know, we want that company. It's a local company. And we've been around Larry Penberthy and his stuff for years. And that's my imagination anyway. Right. Well, that's a, the interesting thing. You know, a few of the companies that we've talked about have moved around the country and changed hands many times. And um, 
it's interesting that you know while while um while MSR you know was sold twice you know once to REI and then from REI to Cascade it all stayed in the same region and really in the same city um, it it really did yeah 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 it really did so kind of unclear what happened you know during the REI years there's probably some more to to dig up there but um it's kind of a looks like a like a 20 year period right that REI had MSR well interestingly over the period of time from when MSR had the com- competitor across the street selling these radical new orange metal monsters and REI was still selling the old fashioned wood ones um eventually uh REI was selling the metal shafted axes right do you when did uh, do you happen to know when REI really started making their own products? I mean, for a long time, they you know they're they're primarily you know retail, you know selling other or wholesale. Um, it, you know, recently they've really started making their own products. Do, is there anything that you can tie back to them purchasing MSR and and using that as a way to build out their own product team? Is there any anything to that? Do, do you happen to know? Um. The only thing I can tie in there is um, back in, I believe it was like the late 70s, early 80s, um, REI opened up its own manufacturing for down things. It was called FA, uh, and FAS uh, actually stood for uh, I, the names of some people. Um, I think the A was for Lloyd Anderson. The W might have been for Whitaker, who took over the management of the company. Uh, and then there were a couple other names. I've, I've got them. But uh, that's, to my knowledge, the first time they really started making stuff. Mm. Oh, interesting. And after that, um, yeah, it's a, long, it's, it's a long, long story. And, of course, now what you, what you see is almost everything in the stores is, is, is from Asia. Right, right. Well, so Larry passed away in, in 2001. Um, you know, I, I guess towards the end of his life, I, I asked this question about kind of all the founders and, and you didn't get the chance to meet him necessarily, but did you have any idea, you know, what he thought of, of his legacy? I've asked this about everyone, right? Um, have you read anything about what he thought of kind of, did he accomplish what he set out to do? Yeah, that's kind of why he got out of it. Uh, he had invented all this stuff and put all this safety stuff out there and stirred, stirred up all this controversy and discovered the use of pile and so forth and so on. And um, he just felt like, yeah, okay, I have other things I want to do now. And went back to his glass business. He eventually uh, ran for Congress in uh, Washington, um, he had a method to, he felt, make um, nuclear waste safe by vitrifying it and closing it in glass in, in some, some way that I don't really understand. But um, anyway, he didn't get elected. And, but people I, I talked to about his later life is he maintained his contacts with a lot of the people who'd uh, developed his products like the, uh, the one guy in particular who uh, uh, basically designed the stove um, but he wasn't putting out 
outdoor products. Right. And so I know that's not quite a direct answer, but um, he felt like he had been pretty successful at what he wanted to do. He'd had a number of battles and fights along the way, fights with RAI over carrying this unsafe gear. He, was, he fought with the National Park Service over access for climbers and for senior citizens. He felt like the Park Service was being too restrictive of access up on Mount Rainier and had quite some battles with them. He, he was just a guy who uh, is not, was not afraid to innovate, um, to be creative, to weather the slings and arrows. And I think for designers and gear creators, that's, a, that's an important message. Right. Well, it seems like Jack to be ushering in this new era of the outdoor industry, right? Where it's, it is, you know, a focus on, on testing the, more of the analytic side of, of the industry, right? Performance materials, all of that. Um, yeah. I think he, he and Jack certainly kind of ushered that in, at least from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, new materials like pile, for instance, um, new designs and considerations uh, for safety and, and uh, supported by science. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, any, any last thoughts on, on Larry, on, on MSR, on that, the legacy, I know we've just touched on that, but do you have any, any last thoughts, anything we missed? Oh, I just like to mention that uh, cascade designs was very uh, gracious to me. They, uh, they, they worked with me on some aspects of the book and uh, uh, invited me up. And uh, I presented the book uh, to uh, a group of them, uh, the president, and I, I believe one of the uh, founders of Thermarest was there. And they, they, had a, uh, they have a little museum uh, for MSR up there on the second floor. It's not public, I don't think, but... Uh, it's two big glass cases end to end. And they have a number of uh, products in there that even I hadn't seen. Mm. Uh, like the uh, MSR bike helmet. That was another innovation. Penberthy said, hmm, boy, biking around is kind of dangerous. Back in the uh, mid-60s, nobody was using bike helmets. The only one that was even seen rarely was a bell one, a uh, bell helmet. And so he invented this modification of his climbing helmet that was bright yellow for visibility and looked kind of dorky. His, uh, his daughter, he tried to force her to wear it, and she, she gave up bike riding because of that. <laughs> but there was a period of time where you could go through the streets of Seattle and see this Anywhere there were a lot of bicycles, you'd see a lot of yellow heads bobbing around. Right. Yeah, so it's a story that's of importance because um, if you're a designer, um, I think you're going to feel at your best if you're not afraid to break some boundaries and rules and maybe be controversial. Or if you're always worried about, oh, is this going to sell? you're going to hold yourself back in many ways. So 
that's the story I think of MSR more than anything. Right. That's, that's a great lesson. Well, we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, thanks as always for your research, um, your knowledge on these topics and, uh, for documenting this history and then sharing it with us. So thanks again, Bruce. Oh, you are welcome, Chase. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on highlanderbag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley. Thank you.